On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about working from home. Some are saying that the shine is off the rose. That's a mixed metaphor, but you get my point. Some are saying that it's kind of falling apart and we're seeing the flaws in it. Are we? Or is it still a good thing? We're talking about traveling. Now, not too many people are traveling these days, but people are thinking about traveling. Are we seeing people start to book vacations or are we still in the desert here as far as that goes? And should Kurt Schilling be in the Hall of Fame, even if his views don't align with some of the voters who might put him there? That seems to have been the thing that got in the way of him being inducted this year. Is that what is right? We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Many of us, uh, myself included, even right now, have been working from our home for months and months and months. And as I say, many of you listening, if you're working, probably been doing it from home. You've got kids, you've got friends, you've got neighbors, a lot of people, many, many people working from home. And let's be honest, there's an awful lot to like about it. The coffee is very cheap and generally better than what you get at work in the cafeteria. No need to fill up the gas tank and then sit in traffic and waste your time in a commute. Uh, Your wardrobe choices, wide open. I don't even want to tell you what I'm wearing right now. Not something I would probably wear in public, kind of, you know, a little too casual. Uh, Bathroom's clean. You're not being distracted. You're not distracting others. A lot of good things. Even so, there are a number of executives, in particular executives in the banking industry, who are right now saying the idea of working from home is beginning to show some wear. Here's what one of them said. I don't think it's sustainable. This was the chief executive officer from Barclays Bank. Um, In the corporate world, if you ask anyone today, it feels like it's fraying. It's hard. It takes a lot of inner strength and sustainability every single day to continue to focus and to not have the energy you get from being around other people. Is that right? We bring in Dr. John Trugakos. He's an associate professor of organizational behavior and human resources management in the Department of Management at the University of Toronto. Dr. Trugakos, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you hear these comments, you, you, you read these quotes, you hear these quotes. Are, are the people right who are saying that things are beginning to fray around the edges? Are we starting to see some weaknesses in the, in the concept of working from home? I think to some degree that may be true. I think it's also partly uh, a product of the overall pandemic in general, that um, people are missing general social interactions. They're uh, oftentimes having to work from home with kids. Uh, so uh, there's, you know, there's a number of it kind of elements at play here. Um, what, what I think, you know, part of that that is true is that people do miss their colleagues. They do miss kind of having the choice and the freedom to go into work. Um, but I think people in the future, you know, this, this may be something that uh, works kind of as a, a hybrid type system. Well, that's something that some of them uh, have suggested that someday or the day will come when COVID is now no longer driving our lives, that you may have this choice. I wondered about that, though, when they said that and thought, if I choose then to stay home, am I going to be looked down upon by the bosses as not being as motivated or not being a team player or something? Is Are you going to have the choice, but not really? That's that's an interesting question. I think this was partly an issue also previous to the pandemic um, mm-hmm. where companies were offering this and you did. I mean, you know, there were examples of people kind of missing out on promotions or missing out on important opportunities to network and connect um, when they primarily would work from home. 
But I think also this has been a bit of a reset in the way we kind of conceptualize what we're doing. Um, some colleagues of mine and I did a study a few months ago near uh, kind of the first few months of the pandemic, and we surveyed over 500 uh, Canadians across the country. And what they told us was that a- approximately 70% of people preferred this hybrid work model where they would have some days work from home, some days uh, to be able to go into the office. So I think there is that potential possibility, although it it is not quite so clear cut um, as we come out of the pandemic, what that's going to look like. Well, and, and it's not exactly the same. And I grant you, it's, my example is not perfect here, but we've heard it often that, you know, women will go off on a maternity leave and be out of the office for a number of months or a year. And the, the, the belief is that that being away from the office, being out of the loop, will oftentimes affect them when it comes to promotions or moving ahead, which is kind of where I got the the thought is, is it going to hurt you to not be there? So I think one thing we have to keep in mind here is that if we do adopt a hybrid system going forward into the future, we're not talking about, you know, people not coming into work for a year or two years. Um, what we're talking about is people, you know, maybe coming into work uh, two days of the week or three days of the week and the other days being at home. Now, one thing I will point out is that generally speaking, women are disadvantaged. Um, You know, there are stereotypes that unfortunately we've seen exacerbated through this pandemic that are bigger issues that we're going to have to reconcile moving forward uh, coming out of the pandemic. One of the people who was quoted in a piece that was written about this today, about the idea that maybe working at home is showing some wear, said that it had been initially successful and that that initial success was the result of a giant burst of adrenaline everyone had because this was something new and something exciting. Do you think there might be something to that? I think initially probably people were a lot more focused on making sure that this worked because a lot of people had fear that their jobs were depending on it and probably you know for a lot of people they were and maybe still you know they still are. Um, I think as we've kind of moved along, there is a fatigue. I think we're seeing a general societal burnout. I mean, you know, just engaging in the types of things we're having to do to to prevent the spread of the virus requires a high level of vigilance, which is very tiring for people overall. So uh, between that and not getting our social interactions, both in our personal lives and our work uh, spaces, this makes it a little bit um, draining for people. And it can really, I think we're seeing a, a phase of the pandemic here with winter and everything too, especially here in Canada, where we are seeing a bit of burnout settling in uh, and, and people are struggling a little bit with it. So I think beyond, it's, it's an issue that goes beyond just the working from home. I think it's the fact, you know, so many factors having kids being at home with parents who are working. Um, and of course, not, this doesn't affect everybody. There are essential workers who are still dealing with this burnout uh, that have to go into work every day. And so we're seeing this kind of on a society wide level. Um, and, and I think it, it is definitely manifesting for a lot of also for those people who are working from home. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Trugakis, we think, I think most people, if you had asked 10 months ago, a year ago, and talked about socializing in the office, that would have carried a negative connotation because it would have sounded like someone was screwing around or not doing their job or wasting time distracting someone else. I'm wondering though, something we seem to be hearing here is maybe there's a benefit or a a positive to that socializing in the office and not even just from a socializing point of view, but from a production and idea generating point of view. Certainly. We we do know that there are benefits to interacting with our colleagues and creativity being primary amongst them. Um, But also there's the idea, and I know it was brought up in this article, but the idea that it's energizing. Um, and, you know, some research that I've done with some colleagues 
shows this, in fact, when when people want to socialize with the people in the workplace, that, that it is beneficial to them and to their energy levels. Um, and, and of course, that that can lead to more productivity as well. Uh, you know, the, the question is, the issue is when you're kind of forced into socializing or uh, it kind of becomes this mundane routine thing. But there are benefits. Um, and, and this is definitely something that workplaces right now with their employees that work from home are having a hard time replicating uh, in the home environment. Zoom or Microsoft Office or FaceTime can't do the same? It's pretty tricky. I mean, I think some companies can do it. And depending on the nature of the, um, you know, kind of the, the, the team connection before they went into the lockdown, you can get some of the benefits. Um, but, you know, there's something to be said about that spontaneous drop in at the colleague's desk or office that says, hey, what do you think of this problem? Um, and they kind of, you know, you, you brainstorm it really quickly and come up with something. Um, that that is something that we're not really uh, we're not really finding right now in work from home, and I think that's where a big uh, loss is. Not to mention that uh, oftentimes people are so tired, um, you know, they're trying to connect and they're so tired of being on these uh, online meetings that I think they're ready to get off them. Um, and you know, this is you know they're they're kind of maybe initially I think people were pretty happy to connect with people and talk, and now I think everyone, as the saying goes, they're kind of zoomed <laughs> out, right? So it's a different it's a different mindset I think as we've gone along here. And it, and it is a question of understanding how do we adapt as we go forward. Uh, obviously, I don't think this is going to be something we won't continue to use in some form, um, but there will be adjustments that are needed, like with anything uh, that happens in society and in the workplace, you know, we'll come up with better ways to do it as we move forward. One of the big concerns, even before this, when people were wanting to work from home or some days were working from home was, are they really going to be working or are they just going to be watching TV and doing a little work? And do we really know? Do you think people, and obviously everyone's different, but as a rule, do you think people work as hard when they're at home? I think that people do work hard. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we have seen so far, what the, you know, kind of the data tells us to this point is that people are relatively productive. Um, maybe the way they work is a little different. Unfortunately, people are having a hard time managing those boundaries, which is maybe why this is becoming a bit wearisome for certain people. What do you um, mean? Well, they're, you know, they're, they're working in times that they wouldn't work. You know, they're working way after hours. They're they're emailing people late, uh, taking emails later, going through into the weekend. Um, and sure, you know, that in the beginning of the pandemic, that might have felt like a thing that people had to do to fill the time and uh, maybe justify their jobs to their employers. But people can only do that for so long without kind of getting that break. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that companies and I've, and I've been working with a number of companies on um, over the last few months is uh, being able to manage that, manage productivity windows and helping employees keep productive without that level of burnout and fatigue that comes with that. And that's a challenge that every organization faces, as well as every individual employee faces in being able to keep themselves balanced between work, home, uh, their productivity and their well-being. Because I really, and I agree with you, and I think there's an awful lot of people, in fact, I would believe it's the majority who almost feel that because there are no eyes on them, they have to do more just to prove that they're not slacking off, that they almost feel like there's an obligation to really show that I'm working, which means doing even more than I ever would have done. Sure. I mean, I think that is something that definitely people have felt. And, you know, of course, when people feel like their job uh, could be threatened, they're going to go way above right. and beyond potentially. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that some people haven't slacked off or don't take advantage. I mean, that, but that's the same thing even in the office um, with people time stealing and, and using, to, you know, work time for personal uh, things as well. So it's not like we see probably a big change. We're just more aware of what people are, you know, the, the, the threat of that because people are at home and we as an organization, you know, as managers don't have our eyes on our people. But, uh, you know, by and large, what the data is showing and what we kind of see is that, 
um, you know, people are being, you know, fairly productive and, and the problem is going the other direction that, um, you know, we may have an issue with people overdoing it. And now we're going to see, I think we're seeing dips in productivity or can expect to see them as we go through this, as people are burnt out and they just don't have any more to give. Dr. John Trugakos from the University of Toronto. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for giving your insights. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it, I mean, it's a really tricky one. And I, I agree with so much of what was said there, especially the end part about, I, I really get the sense, and maybe you do too, or maybe you feel the opposite, but I really get the sense that those boundaries have become a problem for a lot of people, that if you've got your computer in your home, you've got your office in your home, you've got connections to all of the stuff that you normally would have done at the office and then left the office for the day, and there's that wall that you cross over into free time life, into family life, into your own time. Now that there's no wall anymore, it all blends together. And so, you know, suddenly instead of be finishing at five or even doing five thirty or six, it's now eight or middle of the night, you can't sleep. So you get up and do a couple hours work, which you may have done before. It's just, there's no boundaries anymore. And I really do agree that the level of burnout that you're seeing from people is high and will not change if you go back to the office because now you're rolling right back into the office and you're going to be expected to show that you're working hard again, which, you know, nothing wrong with working hard, but these are tricky, tricky times. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the show, um, unaware of what today was, unaware of the magnitude of today, I asked you, what you can't wait to do once COVID finally lets up and we can finally get back to normal life. And you had all kinds of answers. Many of them were, you would like to travel again. You'd like to go on a vacation. That's what I said too. Now, when I said the magnitude of today, I had no idea yesterday while I was asking this question that today is National Plan a Vacation Day. Brought to you by nobody. We've got no sponsor for this. It's just National Plan a Vacation Day. Trouble is... Who can plan a vacation right now? The answer is, well, I guess you can plan it. You just can't go anywhere right now. But that would does that not make you think that planning it is also going to be difficult? Because, you know, you can look far ahead, but boy, it's daunting or it's frustrating when you can't actually go. But is anyone doing that? Is anyone looking ahead now? Well, let me bring in Shauna Curtin-Weatherill. She runs the Expedia Cruise Ship Centers in Waterdown. She joins us. Shauna, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Scott. I am guessing, uh, and I don't mean to be glib, um, I'm certainly not <laughs> reveling in this. Uh, you've probably had some time on your hands the last few months. Actually, no. We've, really? Uh, we've been, yeah, all of, all of the agents have been extremely busy um, with cancellations. Ah. <laughs> yeah, uh, cancellations and just learning the new new policies and everything that's moving forward. We have to stay on top of that because at some point we'll have to educate clients on what they need to do. So no, we've actually been extremely busy. I still go into the office every day. Yeah, I, sorry. When I was saying about time on your hands, I had not don- I hadn't thought of the cancellation part. I was thinking mostly of the booking part. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess a lot of people just getting out of whatever they had booked. Um, because, I mean, again, maybe I'm wrong, but it certainly seems like the travel industry f- since last March has been, is decimated too strong a word? <laughs> nope. No, I I agree. 100% decimated. And and even this week now, you've got the Prime Minister you know, with, with good intentions, but the Prime Minister is saying, don't travel. If you have a vacation, cancel it. Um, you must have flinched or grinded your teeth or something when you heard that again. I, I did. Yes, I did. 
Yeah, 100%. So how, how do people then in your industry maintain any kind of sense of optimism? I mean, it's going to end eventually, but it's still got to be pretty tough. Uh, it is. It's extremely tough. And we're keeping our optimism high because what we're doing is all of myself and my consultants, and I know pretty much everywhere, anybody that's a travel consultant, they do it because you're passionate about it. It's certainly not because we're you know, making a ton of money. We're doing it because we're passionate about travel. We love customer service and dealing with our clients. So right now what we're doing is we're working so diligently on learning about new destinations, new resorts. Um, what policies are going to be, what the different cruise lines are offering as far as keeping you safe, how travel is going to be moving forward. So once you say, Scott, book me on this, I can say, I write, here's all the things you need to know prior to travel and when you get home. All right, let's get into a bunch of those. But just before we do, are people actually booking right now? Again, not for this minute. Obviously, we know they're not going. I don't think they're going anywhere right now. But uh, for down the road, are people coming in or calling in and saying, I want to be booked for whenever? Yes, the the calls and the requests are down, you know, 80, 85%. But people are calling. So we're giving them all the information they need. So we're booking some late fall all-inclusive resorts. And we're, we're ensuring that clients have the option of it being refundable. Uh, and we're also booking quite a few cruises. I shouldn't say quite a few. We're booking cruises for 2022 and early 2023. Wow. Mm-hmm. That, that so seems... People, people want to go. But it seems that that's unusually early. I mean, obviously, we understand the circumstances, but people normally wouldn't be booking a cruise two or two more than two years out, would they normally? No, normally it's, it's probably about nine months out um, is a good time to book a cruise if, if not a year, but right now the cabin space is filling up and we still don't know if once cruising returns, if ships will be at full capacity. So the cabin space is filling up. So people that do want to cruise know I have, you know, if I want to be on the port side because I'm going to go through Europe and I want to be midship, I'm going to get that cabin now knowing that your deposit is refundable. I was sort of surprised that I read something a week or so ago uh, that someone from Carnival Cruise Line says, yeah, it took a beating last year and it's going to take a beating this year, but the booking numbers for 2022 are already ahead of 2019's numbers, which I was, I was very surprised by that. Yes, yes, it is. We've actually, not in our center, but there's been uh, more so in the States where people have walked in and booked a world cruise for 2022. Just because they're saying, I, you know what, I've had now a year that I've not traveled, book me on that world cruise. Is there, are they expressing, are people expressing concern or hesitancy, not about the fact that they may have to cancel, but about their fears of what the health protocols will be or whether they might get sick on it? Or are people still scared to do it? There, well, they, I think everyone's falling into different categories. There's some people that are concerned and, and there's more that are, um, I wouldn't even say that it's, people that are high risk. I have some people in their 70s that are booking cruises right now and relying on the vaccine. And just because they know what protocols to take place in the cruise industry, and you're a cruiser, so you do know how much they clean. Well, they've just upped their game a whole lot. Um, But there are some people that are concerned about being ill and what happens if I'm stranded and, um, you know, what's the the medicine going to be like if I am in an island somewhere? How am I going to be taken care of? And those are things that we're making sure people know of that this is where clinics are and you know maybe you want to travel to places where you understand the language there's not a language barrier in the event you are sick you don't have that problem so we've got insurance policies we're looking at there's a COVID policy out the problem is right now with um, non-essential travel 
all of that becomes void. So we're making sure that our clients are are being told the fine print because they're not reading it. So we're we're mm. right now I would say deterring more people from they're saying just get me somewhere. We're we're making sure that they know honestly what's in store for them once they get down there and once they get home. Do have people come to you though even now and said I want to go away now. I know what the problems are. I know we're not supposed to. Do you have anyone who actually wants to go now? Yeah. Yes, we do. And so it's it's ridiculous what we do because we seem to be sending them a, an entire phone conversation or an entire paragraph of, just so you know, eyes wide open, this is your worst case scenario in the event you go. Ethically and morally, we can't tell people, yes, it's safe to travel, go ahead and do it because we have to, like everyone else, flatten the curve and we have to do our part and we have to ensure that everyone knows what protocols are in place and that the government has said non-essential travel should not happen. So we're giving them the information they need. There are still some people that are, you know, they're, they're determined. They want to go somewhere and they've said, when I'm there, I'm going to wear a mask. When I'm home, I'm going to quarantine. And, and that's our job is to help them get their travel. There's not a lot. Most people are staying at home. Most people are doing what they're supposed to. This is just a scary time. But you do have some people that are at their wit's end and they say, just get me somewhere. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Shauna, for the people who are looking and saying, okay, you know what? I I know we can't do it now, but I got to be optimistic. I got to have something to look forward to. Where are they booking? I mean, because cruising has been one of those industries that, you know, has been not only smashed, but people are concerned, a lot of them, because of the number of people and the proximity. So are cruises fine or are people now saying, you know, I I think I'd rather go to a, uh, a, a, a small place or an island or something else. What, what are people wanting? Uh, so there's a variety. We do have people that diehard cruisers are still going to cruise. Uh, and the cruise ships are doing their very best because they're working with the CDC and they're they're being overlooked by the CDC. So they're, they have to ensure that their ships are safe, which is why right now they are doing voluntary pauses until they are 100% sure when they go out they're going to be safe. And then it takes, you know, the role of the passenger that has to ensure that that they're following the safety protocols. Um, as far as all-inclusive resorts, same thing. They're trying to their best to follow the protocols. A lot of the, the islands are still in a level four or level three, which is like a, an orange and a red. But moving forward, they're doing their best for protocols, and all buffets now are now you're served. You no longer will be able to take your own food. Um, but there's also some of the tour companies like um, Globus and G-Adventures and Trafalgar, they're now doing land tours and they've made their larger groups into small groups. So you could literally say, Scott, to a bunch of your friends, how about we all go to Italy and do a land tour? And it would just be your group of 16. So you're traveling with your friends. You're not bringing anybody in that you don't know. And the tour operators, everyone is sort of um, pivoting right now to, you know, work with coronavirus and ensure that there's safety and people want to travel because they feel safe. Do people though feel, we were talking last night on the show about the Olympics and about whether or not the Olympics are going to happen. And one of the comments then was, you know, you don't want to sound like you are being xenophobic or something, but there are concerns from people about those in developing parts of the world and will their vaccine programs be as efficient or come on as fast. I think the same question applies here. Are there concerns that there are some islands or some places that, you know, they may have been great tourist attractions, maybe great destinations, but we don't really know whether they're going to be safe because we don't know what their health policy is. 
Right. There was that criticism that came about when um, the government implemented that you you require a PCR test prior to leaving your destination. So there are some, some islands that are wealthier than others, and you have to get your PCR test in that island, and they they thrive on tourism. So essentially, we're trusting that those those PCR tests are going to be accurate or they're up to date. And, you know, again, if there's different language barriers or they're not working with the CDC like the, the cruise industry is and river ships, um, it's, it's putting a little bit of faith in, I think, an area, yes, that we don't know. And there's that concern from people. There's some that have written off certain islands that they just won't go to. Uh, and other ones, they've you know, and it depends too on the tour operator because you've got some that are overseen, for instance, um, Sandals and Beaches Resort. They have such a large corporation behind them that they are watching what they do. And maybe some of the smaller ones aren't particularly watching those. And I don't know, Airbnbs, who governs them to make sure that they're following policies and procedures and that sort of thing. So it's it's got to be your comfort level of where you go, and that's where we come in as a travel agent to sit and talk to you and say, give me your concerns, let me look into it, and let me tell you where is best for you to go so you feel comfortable. All right, so we've got rules. We know about the rules. We've got health issues. We've got a pandemic, oh, blah, blah, blah. For a lot of people, it's like, you know what? I don't care. Are there deals? All I want to know is in 2022, if I go away... <laughs> Are they offering deals right now? I'll take my chances if you can tell me that I'm going to get the steal of a lifetime and I can go somewhere for super cheap. Uh, and then, you know, it got me thinking, are there deals or are the places and the cruises and everything else so desperate because they've lost so much money and thinking people are desperate that they're just holding their prices at the same point or even raising them? Uh, there are some deals, but I, I wouldn't say anything is cheap because right now they've had to implement so many more of these safety protocols, bring in more people, bring in more doctors and nurses, bring in more PPE, uh, more testing. If we, if, if moving forward, we have to be tested on a ship, all that has been put on. And then in the all-inclusive resorts, you know, because nothing is at capacity, you're not going to get anything that's a steal. It's not like you're going to hear people, you know, that said, I, I got to St. Lucia for $300 a person. Mm. that's not out there. I'd love to tell you it is. Let, yeah, let me know when you, that happens. Yeah, what I can tell you, though, is if you're booking into 2022 and you book it now and your deposit is refundable, you're booking in 2021 rates. So you're definitely getting a better deal booking early than you are waiting because those last-minute things are just not going to be around. Shona Curtin Weatherall, uh, what's your email, or pardon me, your website address if someone wanted to get in touch and actually wanted to plan something for down the road? Yes, it's www.expediacruises.com backslash water down. We changed go. our name to Expedia Cruises from Expedia oh. Cruise Ship Centers. Yeah. Well, makes it much easier. Yeah, uh, Shauna, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. It is something to dream about, right? To hope for, to think about, to plan for. I, there is something in my mind. Traveling is great, but one of the great parts about traveling and having a trip is having that thing ahead, that bauble, that carrot that you're running towards that you can say, you know, I got that to look forward to. That's one of the great parts about it. So, you know, you may have to do that for a year or two from now, but at least it's something. Touch wood. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH just got off the air after doing, well, his job. Uh, that's what they pay him for. He joins us now. Sir, how are you today? 
Um, I'm somewhat curious by your unbelievable amount of optimism that is just spilling out of the radio today. You're like a candle in the wind. I'm a bluebird of happiness. <laughs> it's, you know, you've got a choice, right? You've you got a choice. Your life right now. This is incredible. There, you've got a choice. There's been some days recently that you go, man, this sucks. We're in the middle of winter. Summer is about, it seems, 18 months away. And, you know, and then you say, yeah, you know what? We're okay. We're going to be fine. We're going to do it. Let's just, let's just try and be optimistic here. By tomorrow, I'll probably be sour again, but you know, ride it out for the day. Back to your regular self. Back to the regular self. (laughs) Cynical, skeptical, sourpuss. That's right. So enjoy it today while everything is good. And no, in case anyone's wondering, I am not on any drugs. That is not what this is about. Uh, let me ask you something. Speaking of uh, cynical and skeptical and happy and somewhere in between, the story that we're reading, so the, the Baseball Hall of Fame announced its voting for Cooperstown yesterday, and the it was a short announcement because nobody got voted in. To get voted in, you have to get 75% of votes from the voting members, which are people who have covered baseball for 10 years, right? writers and, and media people. Nobody got the 75%. The guy who was closest was Kurt Schilling, former Red Sox, former Arizona Diamondback, fa- former Philadelphia Philly. I think he was 16 votes, 17, 18 votes, something like that away from getting in. And he's, this has been a, this has been a tricky one because many people, Bubba would argue the guy is a hall of famer based on his career. He is a hall of famer, but he also has taken some controversial positions that many of the writers don't agree with. He is a right wing guy. He was a Trump supporter and we've seen writers and other media people publicly in the last day or two saying, I couldn't vote for him because of his political positions. Should that factor in any way into whether or not you vote for him into the hall of fame? Well, you would have to kick out half of the hall of fame. I mean, just based on the, on the, the election itself, didn't nearly 50 or 50% of the country vote for uh, Donald Trump. I mean, that would just be a ridiculous, I mean, uh, here's, here's the thing here. Um, uh, Kurt Schilling has been controversial, has been controversial stance. I mean, I believe there was a time he thought the, the world was flat as well, too. Um, I think this is more of him being, uh, he, he has spoken out on various things. Um, no real linkage to PEDs or drugs or anything like that. But, you know, I, 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 I kind of believe in what he said in that, you know what, I don't care if I get in right now. Because he will get in uh, on the um, the veterans vote, which will happen sometime later in, in some years from now, that the voting is done by the players. I have long said this, and I know you know this is a stance of mine, that this vote, baseball Hall of Fame thing, and in fact many of the Hall of Fames, they're not a real favorite of mine because they're done by the media um, who at times hold grudges against people and they come up with silly excuses like what you just said there, to keep a guy out of the Hall of Fame. So to me, this is just nonsense. It's silliness. Uh, You know, one of the things, well, one of the things that is brought up in this when people say they couldn't vote for him is if you look at the list of things that you have to consider, it's your performance on the field and it's this and it's that and character is one of the things. And so they point to that and they say, well, his character is flawed. Well, here's the problem I have with that argument. 
I think what they're talking about, or at least what the people who created that list of things were talking about was your character within the game. You touch on it. Did you cheat? Did you take PEDs or some sort of steroids? Did you gamble on baseball and bring the game into disrepute? I don't think they're meaning, do you hold political views that you, that I may disagree with vigorously, but did nothing within the game to harm the game. I, I don't think that's what it was ever meant to be. And if this is the, as you said, if this is now the line that we say, if you are someone who I don't really agree with your position, I agree with you. Half the Hall of Fame people have to come out. Ty Cobb has to be the first one taken out of there. Because he was apparently an absolute mean, bullying jerk of all jerks. You start going down the list. Why Why would your political views, unless it's criminal, unless you've, like, you know, you get into difficult times. If, now, I know it's not baseball, but with O.J. Simpson or something. Like, you get into, now you get into some weird stuff that's harder to sort out. But if it's just political views that as a voter, I don't agree with, to me, that's a non-starter as far as banning someone or blocking yeah, someone. But, the, you know, the problem is, and you came up with a good definition of there of what, you know, believed to be, you know, one of the stipulations for voting a, or, or not voting a player into the Hall of Fame. The problem is each individual writer has its own, has their own definition of that actual, you know, th that rule. And a lot of these guys, especially some of the older ones hold grudges, and they hold them for many years. There are people that don't want Barry Bonds in there, not because um, of the allegations of drug use, because Barry, when he played, was, was a hard guy to, to work with. He was a jerk at times, especially some of, the, some of the guys that he didn't know or he didn't trust. Right. So th there's just another reason why some people will, you know, that will keep particular people out, because based on his numbers, when you open up the baseball reference dot com or the Major League Baseball record book, you see you would see Barry Bonds. You would see Kurt Schilling. You would see Roger Clemens, you know, at the top or near the top of every significant record that they, you know, as a pitcher or a batter, or, or, you know, would have, or, you know, as a defensive player. Uh, so to me, this kind of definition and, and having Schilling not in there for those particular reasons is nothing but bunk. Well, I'll tell you one other thing, and I want to move on to something else, but I'll tell you one other thing. If you are going to not cast a vote for someone based on the character element that really had nothing to do with baseball. All right. Again, I, I'm, I'm okay with no bonds, if your reason is because, not because he was, as you describe, a jerk to the media, but if you're taking a position that his character with the PED stuff, I can't vote, I'm fine with that. Same with Clemens. Um, but if you're talking about stuff that has nothing to do with baseball and you're one of the voters, your background, if you're going to cast these kind of judgments and hold this, your background better be so squeaky clean. You better not have ever cheated on your wife. You yeah. better not have ever made an inappropriate joke. You better not have ever bullied a kid in middle school. You yeah. better not have done anything. And who among any of us could stand up to that level of scrutiny? No, that's exactly. Right. I'm not saying everyone's cheated on their wife, but we've all got something that if it was put into the spotlight, you would say, Ooh, that doesn't look good. No, you're, you're absolutely correct in saying that. And it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous that, you know, and, and I, this is where I get, I don't agree with Kurt Schilling and a lot of things there, but what he did say, like I said earlier about, you know what, 
the, the veterans committee, which is voted on by the players, the guys that they actually, in, in many cases, they actually played against, maybe they should do the voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Because yeah, I I, I I believe all three of those players. I mean, the controversial players, obviously, at the top of the list. You had uh, uh, Clements and Bonds at about sixty-one percent. The required seventy-five percent of the vote to get in, and as you said, Schilling at seventy-one. I believe all three of those players will get in. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the idea of leaving it just to the players because I think then you end up with a buddy system. I think there's got to be some kind of mix, and I also and you look at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I hate that system because it's this secretive star chamber kind of thing. We don't even know who's who's nominated with that one. No, um, there's got to be some way that you can do this, and maybe just say we're going to take the character thing out. You change the word character to cheating. All right, and so if if you cheated the game, that would maybe allow you to be precluded. But you know, because and especially Bubba, with the way that we are going right now with cancel culture where one bad word can lead you to be, you know, people to say, you've got to be wiped off of society, basically. Look, there's going to be a lot of guys who have one misspeak or one bad thing they do or something else, but have a Hall of Fame career. And what, we're not supposed to put them in now? Come on. It it just, it's, it's, it's silliness to me. It's silliness. If you've broken the law or if you've done something egregious against the game, yes. If it's just that I don't agree with your politics, no, no. Definitely Let me go to another. There is a very tough thing to do in, in that sense. Well, as I say, you better be spotless. If you're going to cast judgment on someone else's character, and again, I'm not talking about cheating. If you're going to cast judgment on their character, your character better be darn well perfect. I agree with you. Let me go to a different one. And this one, um, you know, I, I find this one a fascinating one. I don't know if you heard this interview that was uh, it's been bouncing around the internet for the past day or two. It was with Chris Carter, the former New, uh, Minnesota Viking legendary quarterback, father of, um, what's his name? Played for the Alouettes. Doron um, Carter. Carter. So talking about the football game on the weekend, the NFC Championship, Tampa Bay versus Green Bay. Right at the end of the first half, Tom Brady throws a 39-yard touchdown pass to a guy named Scotty Miller. And it was a bit of a backbreaker for Green Bay. Chris Carter says Scotty Miller was able to score that touchdown and get open because he was white. And when I first heard this, I went, wait a sec, what? What? How are we bringing race into whether or not a guy made a catch? Because it's a catching a ball or not is purely a meritocracy. You either do or you don't. <laughs> His point is the DB who was supposed to be covering him was a African-American guy. And Chris Carter's point is there are a lot of African-American guys in the NFL who won't give, who, who don't believe white guys can run, white guys can do stuff. So he didn't cover him the same way he might have if he was one of the great African-American receivers in the league. He didn't give him his respect and he got burned by this. Do you think there's anything to that, 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 that there is this perception around sports that white guys are seen as inferior to the point where it would affect someone else's play against them? Well, I'm not going to answer your question, uh, specific question, but what I will do, Scott, I'll offer you this. First of all, Chris Carter should, should be fired. That's the most ridiculous. I mean, he said some things, too, that I just I can't understand. But that is one of the more ridiculous things I have ever heard. To the situation, though, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have 
um, Evans, Godwin. They are Pro Bowl type receivers. M- Miller is like the third or fourth receiver on that team. He's also not very big in stature. He would have been the least. He's a guy that also generally is like your third down receiver. He'd be kind of like a like a what we used to have here in Hamilton, like a tasker, right? That yeah, smaller yeah. size. Darren Flutie uh, before that, Darren, you know, or Darren Flutie. Um, those type of receivers, more viewed as possession-like receivers, third-down receivers, guys that will go over the middle and catch short passes. Scotty Miller is a guy that generally does not run streak patterns down the sidelines. That's left to Evans and Godwin. So if you want to say that, that he was the most unlikely guy because of his stature and because of his past history and where they generally line him up, I will accept that because that is the truth that he would have been the least ex- of, of the receivers, the four receivers that were on the field, he would have probably been the least one of the four to go to take anyone deep. And if the DB is lining up thinking, you know, because you know, the defensive backs work together as a team in the secondary, and they would probably be play their coverage a little soft on him and look at the guys that are generally more well-known for going deep. That is the way I would look at that situation and say, you know, the Green Bay Packers got burned because they gave the least amount of attention to the guy that was least expected to go deep down the sideline. That's the way I look at it. Whether he was white or black had absolutely nothing to do with it. See, when I first heard this, my reaction was similar to yours, that that is, well, I mean, first of all, it puts, you can't really say, you know, we can't really say much about it because I don't know I don't know if that's the common perception within the locker room, but to me, the the crazy part about this, where I think he's off, although there, who knows if there's something to this, if there's talk that, you know, or a perception. If you're a guy playing in the NFL anywhere, the last thing you want is to be burned by anybody. I don't care what color or height or whatever you are. You don't want to be on the highlight reel as the guy who allowed someone to do something that is going to be shown again and again and again, because... Ultimately, it's going to cost you money when it comes to contract time and other things. You are going to get a reputation. So I, I find it hard to believe, even if he, even if he thought that, even if that guy really thought I can't be beaten by a white receiver, which you know, who knows? I can't believe that that would have affected how he would have played this thing in any way because you don't want to be humiliated. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with you, Scott. Again, I, I just had to pull up the stats there. You have Mike Evans, who's a 1,000-yard receiver. As I said, Chris Godwin. I forgot about Rob Gronkowski, who's yeah. white, right? Yeah. He's third as well, too. Scotty Miller. Antonio Brown, who only played half the games, is just just below Scotty Miller. So, had say Antonio Brown played a full season. Of the five top receivers on their team, starting receivers, because the rest are all backups, Scotty Miller would have been fifth. So, And as I said, because of his stature, too, a smaller guy, the coverage would have probably rolled more towards any of those other fellows, whether it be Gronkowski, the big tight end, or Evans or Godwin. So in the mind of the, of the, of this, of the guy playing in the secondary, the defensive back, he's not he, – like with a couple of seconds left on the clock – who is the ball like? Who is Tom Brady likely to throw the yeah, ball? No, 100%. You're, you're playing the percentages and expecting the big, especially those long bombs where you're going to go to bigger, taller, big targets that can leap and high point the ball. 
I think that's the only reason why that defensive back played Scotty Miller short, and, uh, soft, and that's why, and they ended up getting burned. So you know what? Bad on the you know for Tampa Bay really for not for, for uh, good on Tampa Bay for taking advantage of something that they probably expected, and I and I would not believe that Green Bay would be the only team thinking this way, and when it comes to playing that team, because you are you just don't want to get burned by their big guys because if you it's bad enough that you get burned in the way they got burned late in that game. But the, if you got burned by a Godwin or Edwin, Ed or Evans, the first thing people will say is, how would you let two of their top receivers be so, be, be so uncovered? How could you allow that to happen? Right? That would have been the first thing that people would say. The yeah, fact that they yeah. got beaten by their fifth best receiver, well, that's, that's open for argument. And you just raised something that I hadn't thought of it, and it's a, it's a fantastic point that you just said. And that is, I don't remember Chris Carter ever saying, or anyone else ever saying, uh, you know, that, well, Rob Gronkowski beat you. And the only reason Rob Gronkowski made a catch was because he was a white guy. Rob Gronkowski is one of the great football players, great receivers ever. And it doesn't matter what color he is. And it's not, he's not being left alone because of his color. I, I look, I thought it was a, I thought it was such an interesting comment that was so, uh, startling when he said it and i thought i don't i i don't think there's anything to this but boy these a lot of the people who were talking boy they all went this is he's really on to something there chris this is really how it's seen and i was like really really is that really how, I, I i can't believe that's the case i got it i got it man i mean i'm generally all over the football stuff i did not see this interview i'm, I'm like my mouth is open right now i'm flabbergasted right and I mean, I'm sure if I sat down with Mr. Carter and we had a conversation about that, I mean, I, and I, don't, know, I don't know if he could change my mind, but at this point right now, based on what, what we've discussed here, and, if that, and I, I find that as a, a highly irresponsible way to make his point. I understand, like I said, based on what I've already described, there is something to be said on why that happened and why a, a, a defensive black, a defensive back, black or white, <laughs> would, 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 would leave that Scotty Miller open. There, that's, a, that's a whole different discussion. But to say that he was left open because he was white, they, oh, God. Well, not left, not, just to be clear, not left open, underestimated. He was underestimated, he was we'll say. Yes, we're, he was yeah. underestimated. You know, this kind of reminds me, um, you know, you got a guy by the name of McCaffrey who's a wide uh, running back in, uh, with the Carolina Panthers. One of the better running backs coming out of the backfield, catching passes, and just running the ball, period. Um, he was injured for most of this year. Um, Christian McCaffrey. Yeah. Um, and and he's, a, he's white, right? And let's be honest here, amongst the National Football League, and even here in Canada, most of the running backs are, for whatever reason, are black. So there's this perception that, you know, the you know there's not a lot of great white you know running backs for many years, for many many years up until, you know, Doug Williams I I will say kind of broke the barrier by winning a Super Bowl, I believe in '83 with the Washington then Redskins, the thought of a black quarterback right running an offense in the National Football League. So there was his own stigmas and stereotypes that were coming at that time. So I don't know, Scott. I just 
I'll say this. If you, there is not a, well, we've seen already every year at the end of the NFL season, we see a bloodletting of coaches and general managers who didn't succeed and they are fired. So, I mean, it is a cutthroat business. The only way you stay in business is by putting together a team that wins. Yep. And so at this point in 2021, I almost forgot what year it was. In 2021, I don't believe that maybe there's one or two, but I don't believe there's too many guys out there saying, oh, you know what? We can't take him because he's white or we can't take him because he's black. You will take any player who is going to help you win because that's going to keep you employed. And so, you know what? If you're playing in the NFL, you're a good football player. Uh, no matter what you are, if you're in the NFL, you are a good football player and you can probably run and you can probably catch a ball and you can do something. And so, you know, go watch the clip. It was on the, it was with the Pat McAfee show, the, uh, for the former kicker. And, oh, and, sure. uh, yep. and it's, 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 it was an interesting comment. That's got a ton of reaction, uh, pro and con and you know, you can make your own mind what you think of it, but there's Bowen. Yeah, again, I, I, I well, I guess I, I, you really got me there. When I get home tonight, I'm definitely going to listen up because I, I just, uh, I really want to hear his um, expanded uh, mindset for saying saying that because I, I really do. I, I think it's just it, that's a silly thing to say. And I, uh, like I said, I don't know if it's a fireable offense or whatever, but um, I, I don't know. I, I, I could only imagine that if we. You know, a, a, a white analyst might have said, you "Yeah, know, that in, would be fireable." Worst, right? Like, you know, like I don't know. Or yeah, if a white guy, a white analyst said the same thing, or if the white analyst said the opposite about a, a black player. Like, I don't know. You know, again, as you talk about, as we talk about another topic, the kind of cancel culture that we live in right now. Uh, what would the listeners or you know or viewers think about that comment in 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 that vein? I don't know. Fascinating, with all of it. fascinating topic. Bubba O'Neill, thanks as always for doing this. Got to run. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.